0: Hi folks, welcome to Fig Tree Ministries. This lesson is the fourth in a series of 16 lessons on the seven churches and their cities that are found in the book of Revelation. Today, we start three weeks in a row looking at the city of Pergamum. Pergamum is an amazing city to visit. And the city in the first century was full of gods and goddesses and their temples. Asclepius, Dionysus, Zeus, just to name a few. So today, we'll look at the remarkable temple complex of the god Asclepius. These lessons were originally presented with photographs from Pergamum, so the corresponding videos can be found at the Fig Tree Ministry YouTube channel, and we'll include a link to that video in the description section below. Seeing the actual images from Pergamum can help solidify these ideas in your mind. As they say, a picture is worth more than a thousand words. So enjoy this first look at the city of Pergamum.
1: Okay, good morning, everybody. So this morning, we are going to take a little trip. I thought, in honor of Mother's Day, we could take a trip to a spa. And I think when you see this place, it'll just blow your mind. Obviously, you can see here on the screen, we're at Pergamum. The city of Pergamum, we're on the letter of Pergamum, which is in Revelation. If we look here at the screen, let me take away that. So what you're seeing there, and we'll talk about this more next week, that is the altar to Zeus at Pergamum. Now, it doesn't look like much. If you want to see the whole altar, you have to go to Germany today because it's in the Pergamum Museum. But the, where that tree is in the center of the square used to stand the largest altar in the world to Zeus, the god Zeus. And that was one of the central things here in Pergamum. We'll get, we'll get back to that later and we'll definitely see it next week. All right. So let's do a, again a review just to orient ourselves in the world where we're going to be going today and where the gospel went out. So we note that All of the blue there is the Mediterranean Sea. You have Egypt and Africa to the south. And then if you look to the northwest, left and up, you'll see the boot of Italy. And that's where the seat of Rome and the Roman Empire was. You have Athens here in the middle. And then way over here on the east side of the Mediterranean, which is about the size of New Jersey, is where the good news of God's reign began. You have Israel, Jesus, at the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, then on to Jerusalem, then from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when the gospel went out, it goes out in this direction. So we've noted a couple times now, almost your entire New Testament is written in this little region over here, in what we call today, Turkey, either by people from, we'll talk about why they call it Asia today, but either people from there to there, the audience is there. So this is a place where the the good news incubates in a sense. Now let's go closer. So here's Israel. The good news is going in this direction. That's the way Paul went. And to a A province, a Roman province called Asia Minor. We'll talk about how it got that name. And specifically, a very little region. You can see right there where the white circle is. And that's where we find the seven cities that are in Revelation, plus some of the other places that Paul wrote to. So let's go there. Let's go closer. And you can see where we have the pins The pins are the seven churches. Now, Colossa is still on there as well, but that's because it sits right next to Laodicea. But Ephesus is the major city, and that's where John is writing from. That's where John lives, and he's pastoring these seven churches. Now, if you read Revelation, it starts out and it says, write this to the seven churches of Asia, and it starts down the list. Ephesus. Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and it goes in that exact order. Now, you can look geographically that that makes sense, because the it's moving in a clockwise circle, and those cities are all connected. So, it's not a, a list of random cities. There's something about it. You, it's, it's always good when we can read the Bible and say, okay, it makes sense on the ground too, in real life. So, those are the seven churches. Now, I want to point something out while we're still on this map. Let me take away these churches. We're going to Pergamum today. That's up in the north. Now, in John's day, Ephesus is the leading city. It's the leading city for population, for commercial, for culture, for finance. It's the leading city. What makes Pergamum important? is that the Roman government is seated there. Now, if you think about California, if we said today, what's the most important city in California? What's the most influential? You might say Los Angeles or maybe San Francisco. But then you'd say, well, what's up with Sacramento? Why is that city important? Well, nothing about it is particularly great in Sacramento, except one thing, the government sits there. So you could think Ephesus, Los Angeles, Pergamum, Sacramento. You could say the same thing with Washington, D.C. and New York, right? There's nothing particularly, Washington, D.C. is a swamp. Why go there? Well, because the federal government sits there. New York City is where all the money the influence everything else is. So Ephesus, New York City, Pergamum, Washington, D.C. Just keep that in mind as we're talking and reading the letter. Okay, let's go closer now to Pergamum. Let's take a look, as we did with Sardis over the past few weeks. We'll zoom in a little bit. And we note that Pergamum sits now, it's on the north side of what's called the Caicus River Valley. Unlike Sardis, where we have lots of geographical features to point out, lots of geography that fits into that, not so much at Pergamum, but just to give you an idea, it sits right on the edge of the mountain range. And of course, that's advantageous when you want to defend yourself against the barbarians. If we go closer to Pergamum, well, note right where that pin is and where it says Pergamum, that's the Acropolis of Pergamum. It's about a thousand feet higher than the city. So great. And it's, it drops off very sharply. So it's, it's an easy defense or easy place to defend. Now, that's the Acropolis of Pergamum. This modern city is called Bergama. Um, just so you know, in, in Arabic, they don't generally have a P. So, Pergamum would be Bergama. Just like when we were at Caesarea Philippi, the city there in Israel is called Banias. B A N I S. Banias. Well, it used to be called Panias for the god Pan, but same thing. It switches from a P to a B. So, anyways, Bergama is the city. And then, where we want to go today is, it's not on the Acropolis. We'll do that next week. Where we want to go today is off. It looks like it's off in the country. I just put a a circle there on the screen. The reason that it sits over there are there are some springs that flow out of the side of the hills. And you have to put your temple where the springs are. So that's where we're going to end up today. That's our destination. Okay, so that's Pergamum. There again is a shot from the top of the Acropolis, so you can see how high that is as you're looking down on the city of Bergama. And that right there is, of course, as I mentioned, the altar to the god Zeus. Now, as we've done, the way we're going to study Revelation, as we've done this with Sardis over the past few weeks, is we are going to use uh, what Ray Vanderland continued to call text-to-context. And it goes like this. John, his John's Bible is the Old Testament. He's going to take the words from the Old Testament, he's going to connect them, with the cultural and historical context of what is there. And this, in this particular case, what's there at Pergamum, just like he did with Sardis. He's going to weave these two things together. So the message that comes out from the people, it's like it, it emerges out of these sim, symbolic statements and the and how you interpret your Old Testament to give them meaning. So, and just for those who are new on the call, as a reminder, John's writing probably about 90 to 95 AD. The New Testament hasn't been formalized yet, so they're relying entirely on the Old Testament. You probably have letters from Paul circulating, maybe one or two Gospels that have been written and are circulating, but as far as a having anything that's been codified, uh, that comes later on in our Christian history. Okay, so we're going to weave Old Testament text to context. All right, so let's start out. We'll do it a little bit differently this week. Let's start out by reading the letter to Pergamum. So if you have your Bible available, turn to Revelation 2, and we'll start out with verse 12 and 13. So it starts out, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. now I mentioned last week, it's the Romans that carry that sharp double-edged sword. And as I just mentioned in our one of the beginning slides, where's the seat of the government for Rome? Well, it's up in Pergamum. So when he starts that out with the, the sharp double-edged sword, that's right up the Roman alley. Everybody knows who carries that double-edged sword. Okay, verse 13, I know where you live where Satan has his throne. Now, this is going to be what we're going to try to figure out over the next few weeks. When John says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, what is he talking about? What what do scholars think John is pointing to when he refers to it as Satan? And there's a number of possible answers to that. Okay. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Baal La'am, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate meat, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Verse 17. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna, That comes from Exodus. We'll talk about that, God willing, in a couple weeks. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Okay. So as we go over the next couple weeks through the city of Pergamum, we're going to ask ourselves, what are all of these references pointing to that will give us a clue to what John is telling us? And of course, they're all over the place. And you'll definitely find them. Probably others that we haven't seen yet, too. Okay, now what I'd like to do, very briefly, this is not, not like Sardis, where the history is so important to understand, but I do want to give you a couple things about the history of Pergamum, because it helps to figure out how the New Testament is flowing and what John is saying. Okay, so... Where it becomes, at least on the map of recognized cities, is after, you go back to Alexander the Great, that's 333 BC. Alexander the Great dies, and he divides his kingdom into three generals. He divides his kingdom to the Ptolemies, that's in Egypt. So you have all the Ptolemy kings, and you have all the Cleopatra queens. Then you have the Seleucid Greeks. The Seleucids are in Syria. And the Seleucids are the one ones that uh, try to outlaw the reading of the Torah. And then you get the Maccabees and Hanukkah. And then the last general is right here, Lysimachus. So Lysimachus gets a, a portion of uh, Alexander the Great's kingdom, and he puts his headquarters at Pergamum. So the Pergamum becomes the capital of the kingdom of Pergamum. So it's been a capital city in John's day close to 400 years. Okay, next, after Lysimachus, he turns it over to Philaterus. Now, there's not much about him other than Philaterus founds what's called the Adalid dynasty. Now, you don't, re- you don't need to remember these names, but there's a couple people in here that have some, there's important pieces. So, Philaterus had a brother named Eumenes. He adopted the, his brother Eumenes' son, and Eumenes I becomes the king. Then you have Attalus I. Now, again, the names don't mean anything. I'm just throwing words at you at this point. But let me tell you what made Attalus I fairly famous, um, at least that we'll see in our New Testament. About that time, you have groups, hordes of barbarians coming down from Europe, and they're invading the area that we would call Turkey. They call them the Gauls. Now, Gaul, we tend to think France, but this is people more from Romania and that area. And the Gauls were fierce, tribal, just ruthless people. Well, they started to attack towards Pergamum, and Attalus beat them in a battle. He pushed them way out into the middle of nowhere, kind of like, you know, pushing someone out into the middle of Montana. And they settled in an area that then became known as Galatia. Now, the Gauls were completely uh, unsophisticated, tribal. The Greeks thought they were just like hillbillies, in a sense. Stupid people, because they were uneducated. They weren't refined. And so when Paul, writing in the letter of Galatians, addresses the churches there, he says, "'You foolish Galatians.'" Basically, you stupid Galatians is what he's saying. And that's the kind of like, you know, if, if we use the term hillbilly, there's an area of our country that that pertains to, and that's, of course, a negative. So that's important to note that eventually Paul's going to be traveling through Galatia and he's going to address them in a way that they understand why he's insulting them as he does. Okay, let's keep going. Eumenes the first, Attalus the first. Then you have Eumenes the second. Then you have the II. You can pick up the, the trend here. And then finally, 133 BC, you have a guy named Attalus III, and this becomes important. Apparently, Attalus III was a bit of a loner. He didn't, wasn't really into having a kingdom, and he never had an, he never had an heir. So what happened is when he died, he did a very strange thing, and he willed his kingdom to Rome. So suddenly, the kingdom of Pergamum just gets handed to Rome as a province. Now, there was a bit of a fight with Eumenes III, but it didn't last long. But this is so critical, because suddenly, this the, per- the kingdom of Pergamum, without a battle, nothing was destroyed, you didn't have Rome stomping on you like they did to other nations, became one of these leading provinces of the Roman Empire. And when Rome showed up, They took Pergamum, so he bequeaths the kingdom to Rome, and Pergamum becomes the seat of the Roman government. It remained the capital of the kingdom of Pergamum. But now, as Rome shows up, they call it Asia. Asia comes from the Greek word for east, so it becomes the eastern province. Now, they recognize that it's east, But it's not fully East because they really thought of the Big East as India. And so this was Little East or Asia Minor. So that's where we get the term Asia Minor coming from the word East. But this is critical because the cities remained intact. That was vital. They could continue to thrive and the government comes and sits itself right here at Pergamum. Okay, so that's just how did we get there? The Roman government takes over and of course, We know where that ended up. Okay. Now, twice, John says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. So one of the main questions that scholars look for is, why is he saying that? Who is it that he's pointing to that is the fraud that's trying to entice people into worshiping something else? So there's a whole bunch of candidates for that let's go through a list of them that these are the, these are at least the major ones that pop up although there might be more so the first thing we'll notice about pergamum is it is a center huge center for pagan worship huge temples tons of huge temples way more temples than most of the other cities had so you get the everybody's worshipping a, a god there and there's and big gods too this isn't just a little shrine here or there So it's a center for pagan worship. So maybe that's why he says Satan's throne, because that's where the the center of pagan worship sits. So that's one candidate. Second, you have that altar to Zeus. And what they found, the inscriptions uh, to Zeus, is they call him the savior. Well, that's a fraud. We know that Zeus isn't the savior, so maybe that's why. But if you look at that throne at the time, that throne was the largest altar in the world. Calling himself Savior, John clearly sees that that's a fraud, so that's Satan disguising himself as in in light as Satan does. So is it possible that the altar to Zeus or the worship of Zeus is one of the reasons? Yep, I think that's possible. Another one is the temple to Asclepius, and as you'll see why that looks like, That's a complete fraud, too. So the Asclepius Temple, you have, again, the seat of Roman power. Who's persecuting the Christians in John's day? The Romans are. And so if you're the one who's going up against God's people, then maybe you're sitting on Satan's throne. And it's the seat of Roman power. Now, the last one is probably the one that you can get the most mileage out of. As I mentioned in the very first week, there had grown up something that we would call the imperial cult, where the emperors are worshipped as gods or God incarnate. Caesar Augustus is the son of a deity, the son of God. The good news is that Caesar Augustus was born. In 26 BC, the very first city that decided we're going to make our, our worship of a Caesar, was Pergamum. And the, the Caesar was Caesar Augustus. So this is the first place that you find the central worship site for Caesar Augustus, and it's Pergamum. Now, there's other emperors that'll come along, and as we saw in week one, Ephesus is the central worship site for Domitian. That's the current Caesar that John's dealing with. So. Which one of these is it possible? Or maybe the answer is D, all of the above. Let's take a look. We're going to go today, and we're going to look at Asclepius, the god Asclepius. Many of the early church fathers connected everything Asclepius did with the devil. And you'll see why in a minute, because it's a complete fraud of who Jesus is. Okay. So if we are looking, remember I showed you on that big map, this sits a few miles away from the Acropolis. So I'm zooming in with a a zoom lens, and we're saying there's a temple that sits out here, and it sits right next to some sacred springs. Now you'll notice there's a road. It's called the Sacred Road. That Sacred Road is leading to a place, and this whole complex, as we'll see, is the temple to Asclepius, or as we would call it, the Asclepion. So this is the temple of Asclepius. Here is, as we're walking up to our to get our spa treatment, we see the sign, Welcome to the Asclepion. Now, just so you know, Asculapius is another way of saying his name. Asclepius, it kind of depends. It's like tomato, tomato kind of depends if you're Roman or Greek or whomever. This is the Asclepion, the temple to worship Asclepius. Let's go in. Let's go check it out because we want to see. Do we want to get our spa treatment today here at the temple of Asclepius? All right. As you walk up, you come down what they call the sacred way. You're walking down this road. It's leading. The very end of the road is the temple. And, of course, you have these huge colonnades on the side, so it's going to look very sacred as you're moving down that down that path. Now, let's learn a little bit about Asclepius before we go in, right? Let's find out who this god is. So, a little bit of background. Now, of course, this is all myth. One of the problems, as if you've done any study of these ancient gods and the myths, is that you often get very strange myths, or, or I'm sorry, you get differing myths coming out of differing locations. And depending on who's writing it, the story is told a little bit differently, but they all have the generally the same stuff. So let's go through a couple things. The first one is, his father is Apollo. Now, Apollo is the god of the underworld. Now, right there, that could be r- the reason we're calling it Satan's Throne. So Apollo is the god of the underworld. He impregnates a mortal woman named Coronis. So right there, we get another clue that there's a fraud going on. The mother, coronus now there's a couple different stories about how she dies, but essentially she dies. And Asclepius is left now without a mother, and he gets sent out to be raised by a centaur. That's a centaur is the, the, the top half of a, the body is a man. The rest of it is a horse. Obviously, this is a myth. The centaur teaches him medicine and healing. He becomes so good at it so good with medicine and healing, that he raises a man from the dead. Now this throws the gods into a frenzy, because if you can raise a man from the dead, it's going to throw off the balance between God and man in this world. So Zeus, in one story, and another story, the gods, he kills him. He kills Asclepius. Now what happens, if you remember last week, what happens when you die? You go up to the stars, so Asclepius ascended to become a constellation. His constellation is called the Serpent Holder. Eventually, for whatever reason, Zeus decided, I'll resurrect him. So he had been resurrected from the dead. He seats him on Mount Olympus, and that's where Asclepius now reigns from, is up in Mount Olympus. Now, obviously, again, all myth, but we start to see some themes coming out of this. Now, the last bit of this, because... Asclepius is like, he's the god of doctors and the god of the hospital. So he has a couple daughters. Two of his daughters are Hygieia and Panacea. And of course, that's where we get our words for Hygiene and Panacea. So those are two of Asclepius' daughters. Okay, so now you're still excited to go in and get your spa treatment today after learning about our God. Well, let's take a look at just some details here, because we want to ask, is this why John is calling it Satan's throne? Well, right here, he's born of a union between a God and a mortal woman. Resurrected from the dead and seated on the throne with the Father. He's called Savior, Asclepius Soter. If anybody can heal you, they're a Savior. And oh, by the way, his symbol is a snake. Now, right there, you could say, look, I'm done. I'll take it. That's the reason he's calling it Satan's throne, because that's all a complete fraud and the symbol is a snake. So we could say right there, that might be it. But then again, we'll have to keep investigating. Now, you all know Asclepius. You're all familiar with him in some way, shape, or form. Let me show you. This is a statue of Asclepius and you'll notice every time they show him he's got a staff with a snake wrapped around it. That's the Asclepius staff and snake. So this his symbol being the snake. Snakes are thought to have to be able to live forever because they shed their skin. They're also be able to see their their eyes, uh they have wisdom to be able to see the dark places or the magic places. So this picture in the middle there, that's an altar at Pergamum uh, or an incense altar. That's the base of it. You can see the snakes on it. And then here's one more picture of Asclepius with that snake wrapped around a staff. Now, where do we see this today? Well, I don't know, on ambulances or maybe at a doctor's office when you go in and the doctor has a certificate on the wall. That there is the Asclepius snake. In fact, Here's the World Health Organization. That's the symbol to the World Health Organization. And of course, the center of their symbol is the Asclepius snake. So we're still dealing in some way, shape, or form with Asclepius. Okay, but let's go in. Let's go check out this spa treatment. So we're going to head down this road. And there's going to be. Let me go. Let me say this before we do that. Let's at least appreciate the tension. Say that you've become a believer in Jesus in Pergamum in the first century. You live at a small house church. And then one of your family members gets sick. Maybe a child, a spouse, maybe you get sick. Where do you go? Now that you know about Asclepius, where do you go? Do you say... I'll just go in and hope you know cross my fingers behind my back because I don't really believe he's true, but I'll go try to get healed by him. Are you going to have to bow down and give offer something praise to Asclepius? This becomes a real issue because if if you're praying to God and he doesn't heal you for whatever reason, the temptation to go look somewhere else can be huge. So it might be easy for us to say, oh, I would never go in there. But when all of your neighbors and family are saying, just go give it a shot, you never know, maybe Asclepius will work, you might be tempted. So I just want you to get a sense of that. There's a a tension going on that once you know about Asclepius, if you're sick, you're going to have to make a decision of whether you move in that direction or not. But let's go, we'll check it out. Maybe we don't want to make a decision, final decision quite yet. Okay, so as we walk down this road, the very first place we have to stop, we're going to take a left up here. There's a room off to the side, and the room looks like this. This is called admissions. And in admissions, they're doing exactly that. They're going to admit you to the hospital, they interview you. So, what's going on today? What's happening? What's the ailment? They're going to try to figure out, at least, what scholars think is that they want to figure out if 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 Asclepius can heal you, they don't want to let you in if Asclepius can't heal you because that you don't want they don't want unhealed people on Asclepius's record. So it's a way of kind of triaging people before they go into the place. It's admissions. They also noted that they kept records, so you could make deposits, gifts to Asclepion, you or the to Asclepius you put them on deposit so that in the event that you get sick one day, you'll have some money on record. They call it Blue Cross. Seriously, it's a form of insurance that you're making, they would keep records of who makes offerings to Asclepius, and then therefore, when you come in, because it doesn't, it's not free to heal somebody, you would already have some money on deposit. Now, you notice in the middle of this picture here is it looks like a pit that's actually a pool. You can descend in one side, you can come out the other side, and the pool is, well, number one, Asclepius heals through moving water. So he heals by moving water, and so part of your treatment is gonna descend into the water of Asclepius. Now they also noted, because hygiene is important, that it's good to get clean, right? You walk around the dusty streets of Pergamum, and if if you get your the wound that you have is dirty, well you want to clean that out, because good hygiene, they noticed, helps Asclepius heal you. So that's a pool that you'll go in and do your ritual bathing, so to speak, before you head in to see the god. So you get your we get our bath done. Now we're gonna go back to the sacred way and we're gonna move into the temple. Now it's always tough. I know for many of you who've traveled to these ancient sites, you take a picture of something and it looks like a bunch of rocks. So it's really hard to, it's really hard to express what was there. So let me just show you an artist's rendering of what this Asclepion used to look like. This is at the gate. So as you're moving into the Asclepion, they'll show you what they, the artist rendering of how, what they think it used to look like. Let's see what's there. Most of the healing of Asclepius is what we would call natural path or holistic healing. Like I go to a chiropractor and the chiropractor says, look, if we can keep your body adjusted correctly, you'll heal itself. Your body wants to heal. So part of the healing here is all about getting the body to heal itself, release the toxins. One of the things that they have is a library. So in the corner, that building in the corner is a library. You can read about your your ailment, you can read about Asclepius, you can read about diet or exercise or whatever. So they have a library there, or you can just read to reduce stress. You have the temple to Asclepius, because of course you're going to want to go in and give praises to Asclepius for, for all of his great healing. You have in the corner, and wait till you see this, this is just awesome once we get there, these are the treatment rooms. And... It's so cool what they did. There's actually a tunnel that leads you into those treatment rooms. I'll show you in a minute, but it'll just blow your mind. Those are the treatment rooms where you're going to receive treatment from Asclepius, or at least the priests of Asclepius that are called doctors. There's a diagnosis room. So they'll, they'll have you go to sleep and they'll diagnose your dreams or they'll diagnose whatever it is about you and they'll see if they can heal you. In here, that diagnosis room, Then you have a theater. That theater seats about 3,000 people. One of the reasons for the theater is to tell the story of Asclepius so that you learn about Asclepius, the god who is going to heal you. The other thing is they just put on plays because plays is a good, or entertainment is a good way to reduce stress. Okay, so that's the size of it, about five acres, and it had to be fairly impressive um, you know, if you took your kids there, they were probably like, "Wow, this is amazing." Okay, let's go. Here's a picture of the theater. Let me show you that. There's the theater. So we could go, relax, decompress, and watch a play. And that's a good, good way to 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 leave your worries behind, so to speak, for a while. Now, I talked a little bit about the medicine here. It's not exactly like you're going to the hospital to get your, you know, appendix removed. It's much more about the net. They want to get the body to heal itself. So it's all about, well, let's go through the list. Stress relief. How are we going to relieve your stress? Well, there's any number of ways, right? So they say, well, look, we'll teach you about diet. You got a bad diet. Start eating differently. They would do detoxing so you could Different types of foods that you would eat, a diet maybe for a week, and it would detox you, and that would help your body begin to heal. So, diet was important. Exercise is important. Exercise is a way to detox. You have hot and cold baths. You have mud baths, and what they found is the water there that makes those baths is a little bit radioactive. So, the radioactiveness is good for your skin, apparently, and that was how it helped. Heal you. So hot and cold baths, mud baths. Then you have dream interpretation, right? So the the priests would help you understand your dreams, again, to alleviate stress. Uh, In one of the Asclepions, they had art therapy, help you deal with your emotions, same exact things we do today. And then in this one in particular, sunbathing on top of the treatment rooms. Now, when you look at that list you immediately think, well that's exactly what we do today. That's when you go into a day spa today, you go for the hot and cold baths, the mud baths, diet, exercise, sunbathing maybe. They found out sunbathing is good for your skin and there's certain diseases that are that react well in the sun. So anyways, it's pretty remarkable what they came up with and what they recognized would get your body to, again, heal itself, but then they would call it the spirit of Asclepius working inside of you. Now, we need to go to the central place within this Asclepion. I mentioned a couple times, the reason this temple is way out in the middle of nowhere is it sits next to some sacred springs. Springs in the ancient world were always considered sacred. Remember Caesarea Philippi and the spring that comes out and you worship Pan at the spring. Springs were always sacred. And often they thought the water from the springs could heal you. So if we go over a little bit in the middle of this temple complex, here's some spring water coming right out of the ground. And the idea was that Asclepius was going to be able to heal you through living or moving water. So, Asclepius is associated with living water. Now, let me just pause for a second. What's the only of the four Gospels, the only one, the only of the four Gospels that mentions Jesus talking about himself as living water? It's John. John mentions it with the Samaritan woman at the well, and then he mentions it when Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, living water is also something that we find in the Old Testament and we find in Jerusalem. So it's not that metaphor is found all over the place. But which gospel mentions it? John, because he's writing in Ephesus where everybody knows that the living water who heals you is up in Pergamum. And that's where you need to go if you're sick. So part of John's gospel writing is going to go after the gods in Asia. And I'll show you the story from John 5 that'll just blow your mind when you see this. So John's very actively going up against their gods. Now, let me show you. Here's what they said about Asclepius. That moving water was the voice of the god Asclepius. Now, when you walk into a uh, a spa, what's the first sound you hear echoing in the lobby? It's a fountain of some sort. Every room will have a fountain moving, so you get gurgling water. They said, that's the voice of Asclepius. But is it the voice of Asclepius? Well, let's see what John says in Revelation. Turn, if you would, to Revelation 1, verse 12 to 16. So Revelation 1, 12 to 16, says this. Now, this is John's recounting the vision that he saw. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, that's right out of Daniel, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were blazing fire, his feet like bronze glowing in the furnace. Now look at this. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Sound like Asclepius? So John, right there in that sentence, is saying that sound you hear when you walk into the spa to get your massage is not the voice of Asclepius. That's what Jesus sounds like. So the next time you're out at the, wherever, and you hear the gurgling water, recognize that is how John describes the voice of Jesus in heaven. But it's, right there against, going up against the gods there in Asia. Now, as we talked last week, look at verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. That's that how do I get to heaven business. And then coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. So right in that sentence, these few sentences, John is addressing what's going on right there in the local situation in Asia. But anyways, does does Asclepius heal by living water? Well, that's the question we have to ask. Let's go take a look. From this spring, the water runs down to the treatment room. So let's go down and go in to get our treatment from the god Asclepius. Asclepius's father is Apollo. He's the god of the underworld. So in order to get to the treatment rooms, you have to descend into the underworld. So you descend into this tunnel, it's about 200 feet long, and you'll notice in this picture, on top of the tunnel, about every 25 feet or so, they'll have a window that lets air in and some sunlight. Now, what's so cool, I mean, you can't believe the engineering on this, and what they did, remember, Asclepius' voice is moving water, that's how he heals. So check out what they did with the spring the girl in blue in the center here she's looking down to the right and she's looking at that water they engineered it so that the water flowed underneath the sidewalk it now emerges in the stairs so as you're walking in there's water flowing down the stairs that's from the sacred spring we get into the tunnel we turn around and you can see that's running down the side is the water and it disappears underneath the pavers. So when you get inside this tunnel, it's all this smooth rock and there's a stream of water gurgling beneath you. So it just echoes. So as you're moving to the treatment room, Asclepius is speaking to you the whole way, getting you prepared to receive your treatment. So it's about a 200 foot walk. Here's what it looks like as people are strolling through. You can see the little openings that let the sunlight in. That whole way, it's really amazing engineering and hearing the sound of the water flowing around you. And from uh, the scholars there will say that those springs used to be much, uh, have a lot more water coming out of them. So the sound inside of there must have been much louder than it is today. So this is the entrance. We're moving to the treatment room now. We get to the end of that hallway and you can see the group on your le- on the left there, they're entering into one of the treatment rooms. It's a big round building, and then they have a number of treatment rooms off to the side, and it's got two floors to the building. Now, as you go into your treatment room to hear from the god Asclepius, they're going to offer you some opium. So, you're inside a chamber, water is running underneath the stone floor, And you just took some opium, so you're kind of high. You're laying there on your mat or whatever, slightly high in the dark, the water moving all around you. And then the priest is going to give you the diagnosis from Asclepius. He's going to speak the words of Asclepius. Now, here, this is another thing. It just blows your mind to see what they're doing. I want you to notice something. If you're, uh, the picture on your right, it just looks like a curved wall. Is if you notice this little hole that's in that wall right there. Well, that hole is a pipe. It leads back to the priest's quarter, but they would have had it plastered over. So if you're in the room and you just took your opium, you wouldn't notice that there's a plastered hole in the wall that's been, you wouldn't see that hole. It's, it was plastered over. So the priest then goes back to his quarters. There's a closer up picture of that pipe that goes through that wall. And the priest will go back to the quarter, his quarters, and now he's going to speak the words of Ascalapius through that pipe. So now, again, remember, you're a little bit high, you've got the sound of moving water all around you, and then you suddenly hear a voice. And the voice says, You've been locked up in your house for about eight weeks now. Quit watching CNN. Get a mask and go for a walk. Whatever the diagnosis is. Right, you're too stressed out. You need to change your diet. You need to do this. You need to take whatever herbs or whatever medicine we're going to provide you. And so you would hear, as you're maybe slightly asleep, those voice come in your ears, and you would believe that that was the voice of Asclepius diagnosing you. Pretty remarkable what they came up with. Now, apparently, now who knows how people got healed. But people healed from it. Now, you could see if it's just your body naturally healing itself, they think it's the God, but it's just your body healing yourself. So if you get your diagnosis, you follow it and you get healed, well, then you're going to go back out and you're going to make Asclepius an offering. So you go into his temple and you're going to make an offering, a blessing to Asclepius. I'm sure that people thought the more money you put in, the higher your chances are of being healed and all of that. There's one piece that I'm going to save for next week, because I want you to digest this Asclepius business a little bit. One of the other things they did for Asclepius, but you would make your donation, and then you would depart for the day. So that's kind of your spa treatment for healing. And of course, they would say that Asclepius is the living water, and that's how he heals. Now, I mentioned John writing from Ephesus to Asia. Speaks directly against Asclepius. Let me show you something. Now I'm gonna we're gonna leave Turkey for about the next five minutes, and we're gonna travel back to Jerusalem for a minute. So come with me if you've been to Israel, and you happen to go to the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. At the Israel Museum, what you're looking at is a model of Jerusalem in the first century. Now, there's debates over whether the model, how accurate the model is. They're pulling a lot of information from Josephus, and he's not always as correct as they'd like to think he is. But this right here is the temple. That's God's house. That Temple Mount is where Jesus went to teach his disciples to worship God. That's the altar to God, would be right there. You'd make your sacrifices. That's the central point in all of Judaism for worship. That Temple Mount. And of course, that was what was destroyed in 70 AD when the Romans, uh, when they went to war with the Romans. Now, I need to show you right next to that temple, 300 yards, 300 yards away is this little place right here. And it's called the Pools of Bethesda. Now, look how close to that temple it is. It's right underneath the shadow of God's house. Let's go a little bit closer. This is on the model, of course. I'll show you a picture from the pools of Bethesda, but really tough because you go there today and look at it, and you can't figure out what you're looking at. It's just most of what you're amazed at is how much Jerusalem has built up. But um, these are the two pools. Two pools, and they were used to wash the sacrifices. Now, if you would, turn in your Bible to John chapter 5. Now, you all know this story where Jesus is going to heal a lame man, but we need to look at the details here and then understand something about archaeology. Verse 5, or uh, I'm sorry, John 5, verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. That's what we're looking at on that model. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been there, or had been an invalid, for 38 years. Now, what do you suppose the disabled people are lying around this place for? Well, let's go look a little bit closer. Verse six through eight. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in his condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me in the pool when the water is stirred. Now, who heals by moving water? Squeepius, and this guy is looking for the water to be stirred. He says this when I am trying to get in. Someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, and we notice in this, Jesus then just speaks to him and says, "Get up, pick up your mat, and walk." And the man is healed. Now, guess what? And I know you can guess. Guess what? Archaeologists discovered as they were excavating the pools at Bethesda. Well, they discovered that there was an Asclepion built right there on the grounds of the pools, apparently brought by the Romans, who showed up in 63 BC, to Jerusalem. So you have here, right, I mean, well, let me show you, there's a picture of it. You, You really, you look at that, it's just like a hole in the ground and you can see some steps at the bottom possibly those steps from from uh, uh going into the pool but it's really tough to tell what's more amazing is how high up Jerusalem is built so whenever they have to excavate they have to go underneath the current road and excavate down it's pretty remarkable but it's tough to see there but look how close these are someone put a temple to Asclepius right under the shadow of the of God's temple God's house now is it possible that all of those disabled people and this guy had been seeking healing from God, and it didn't show up? So they thought, "What? What do I have to lose? I'll go over to the Asclepius place and see if maybe Asclepius can heal me." And you can understand the desire to be healed is so strong. So what's so cool about this is it starts to le- it leaves verse 14 becomes important in this. If we go back to uh, John verse chapter four or uh, John five verse fourteen, Jesus says this to the guy later. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, "See, you are well again." And then he says this: "Stop sinning." I read that and I think, well, what was his sin? Well, if you if he's there thinking that Asclepius is going to heal them, his sin is a violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. So you can see where Jesus comes up with this idea of sinning, because that always kind of bothered me. Like, well, he's just he's an invalid. Why what's what's the sinning part? What's going on? Jesus says, Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. So you can see how far the how far the reach of Asclepius is. It's it's in Jerusalem, it's in our world today with the Asclepius staff and the snake. We need to tie that to John, because again, why is John telling us that story in his gospel? Because his gospel is being written in Asia to people who know Asclepius, and so he he puts that story in, none of the other gospels do, and that helps you understand what that person may have been doing, and that just destroys the idea of Asclepius as a god. So here's our question today, is Asclepius the living water? Well, absolutely not. And you notice, again, when Jesus heals the man, he doesn't do anything with water. You know, sometimes Jesus spits, and sometimes he rubs mud, and sometimes he sticks fingers in your ear. This time he just says, get up. Asclepius isn't the living water. Jesus is the living water. And that is such a strong message coming out of John, both John, the Gospel of John, and Revelation John. Okay, that is a lot of data. A lot of information in one morning, but hopefully you can see just really how amazing uh, their medicine was. Just for, if if you guys want to do more research on it, in the next hundred years, a doctor shows up named Galen, G-A-L-E-N. Galen was born in Pergamum, became a doctor at that Asclepion, and he, uh, doctors today, as as they look at history of medicine, Galen was highly influential in medicine. So Pergamum is still affecting us in some way, shape, or form. And, oh, by the way, if Luke is a doctor from Asia, well, guess who he used to worship before he turned to Jesus? He would have worshipped Asclepius. Okay, next week we're going to come back to Pergamum because there's just way too much data. We still have to figure out who is John talking about when he says, I know where you live on Satan's throne. There's a few more candidates. We'll look at some of the other gods there. And I'll show you up uh, around the Acropolis as well.
0: Thanks for joining us under the fig tree today for this lesson. Don't forget to go to our website, figtreeteaching.com, and sign up for our newsletter. We send out a newsletter twice per month to highlight videos and to provide you with a lesson plan to help you go deeper into your biblical studies. Our prayer at Fig Tree Ministries is that the more you understand the cultural and historical context that surrounds the words of the Bible, the deeper that you can take God's Word and impart it into your life.